tonight we're going to dive into Romans 11. Romans 11 is a conclusion of, this, of the discussion between 9, 10, and 11. And it's easy to wrap up Romans 11 with 9 and 10, but Pastor Brad, being the great leader he is, he graciously walked me through and how we need to honor Romans 11, 11 separately from those two. So that's what we're going to do tonight. So an overview really quick. Paul insists that though Israel as a nation has rejected Christ, uh, a remnant, which is a small quantity of something of Jewish Christians, exists by God's grace, which means God always fulfills his promises. All right, so let's go into verse 1, Romans 11, verse 1. Paul says, I ask then, did God reject his people? By no means. I am an Israelite myself, a descendant of Abraham from the tribe of Benjamin. God did not reject his people whom he foreknew. Don't you know what scripture says in the passage about Elijah, how he appealed to God against Israel? Lord, they have killed your prophets and torn down your altars. I'm the only one left, and they're trying to kill me. And what was God's answer to him? I have reserved for myself 7,000 who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So too at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. And if by grace, then it cannot be based on works. If it were, grace would no longer be grace. So we're going to stop there. And so Paul has acknowledged that Israel, for the most part, has rejected their faith in Jesus Christ. Paul begins the chapter by asking, if they've rejected their faith in Jesus Christ, does that mean that God has just rejected Israel as a whole? And then what's his answer? A resounding, by no means, no. He says, absolutely not. After Paul himself is an Israelite who has come to faith in Christ and has been saved, showing that it is possible for Jews to be saved. Actually, also in Philippians 3, 5, and 6, Paul actually boasts about being Jewish. He says, I was circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law, a Pharisee, as for zeal, persecuting the church, as for righteousness based on the law, faultless. So what, is, what Paul is saying, that he is of Jewish of all Jewish. He is the most Jewish person a Jewish person could be. So Paul's literally standing there saying, I am living proof that God has not forgotten about Israel, right? And then we move down to verses 2 through 6. Paul draws from the life of Elijah to demonstrate the fact that God always has a remnant, which is a small quantity of something. Elijah thought he was alone in the devotion to the Lord, but God reminded him that there is still 7,000 men who have not bowed their knee to Baal, which means by God and his grace, God has set aside this remnant of Jewish Christians as the true Israel. And what do I mean by true Israel? If we go back to Romans 9, 6 through 8, Paul says, It is not as though God's word had failed, for not all who are descended from Israel are Israel, nor because they are his descendants are they all Abraham's children. On the contrary, it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. In other words, it is not the children by physical descent who are God's children, but it is the children of the promise who are regarded as, regarded as Abraham's offspring. So that's saying true Israel, not all Jewish people are going to be saved. Saying that there's a remnant, a true Israel. And then if we go into verse 6, he goes into if we are saved is because by the grace of God. It is not by our deeds, our birth, our works. We are not saved because of who we are or what we can pr produce. We are saved by grace alone. Say it with me, through faith alone. There you go. There you go. And in, if you don't believe me, Paul says in Ephesians 2, 8 through 9, For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves. It is a gift from God, not by works, so that no man can boast. 
Let's move to verse 7. What then? What the people of Israel sought so earnestly, they did not obtain. The elect among them did, but the others were hardened, as it is written. God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that could not see, and ears that could not hear, to this very day. And David says, May their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. May their eyes be darkened so they cannot see, and their backs be bent forever. So again, verse 7 reminds us that not all who are descended from Israel are Israel. Not all Jews will be saved. It says, what Israel sought so earnestly, it did not obtain. But the elect, the remnant that Paul is talking about, did. The others were hardened. We understand why this is because Paul has already explained of the Israelites didn't receive the righteousness they sought. Or they tried to, they tried to get the righteousness that they sought and not the, ones, not the one that God gave them, which was in Jesus Christ. And we, and we see that in Romans 10, 3. It says, since they did not know the righteousness of God and sought to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. And then we go into verses 8 through 10. Paul quotes two different scriptures in the Old Testament. Uh, the quotations from Isaiah 29 and Psalm 69. It says, God can give them a spirit of stupor and eyes that should not see. And he can say, let their eyes be darkened as he pleases. If God, is pleased, if God is pleased to enlighten only a remnant of Israel at the present time, he may do so as he pleases, because he is God. So, the Jews of Paul's day were so secure in their idea that they were the chosen people, that that was the exact thing that ruined them. And I want to take some time on this point, because some of us in here, me included, are secure in our anger. Some of us are secure in our fear. Might be our pride. Some of us might be so secure in our religiosity, if that's even a word. You might have grown up in church, been around Christians all your life. Say, so I don't want any, any non-Christian friends. I can't do that with my life. I don't want to be brought into that crowd. But if we're not looking to Jesus and we're so secure in these things, then we aren't too far off from the Jews back in Paul's day. I'll say that again. If we aren't looking at Jesus, then we aren't any different than the Jews were back in Paul's day. We should be secure in Jesus and not those things. And it kind of reminds me of Pastor Brad's sermon on Sunday where he was talking about someone sulking in a fire. But God is saying, this is the way out. And he's, they're sulking the fire, and they don't, but they don't go, they don't go out. And, and they're sitting there sulking, and they're so secure in their sulking that they're around the fire that it's the one thing that's ruining them. But they'd rather sit there and let it ruin them rather than go the way God is calling them to go. And I wanted to give, like, a little personal story. Uh, in the past couple months, I started to get this fear knowing that first Wednesday was coming up. <laughs> Telling you is real. Like, it was real fear. And I felt secure. I felt righteous because I have the right to, f to be fearful of this. Because public speaking is like one of the biggest fears, I think they say, out of all people. So I was, I was for, real, for real fearful. Say that five times fast. Uh, but I let that, that was the one thing that was ruining me because I didn't even start my sermon when I should have started my sermon. I, I let it, I let it progress. <laughs> I let, it, I let it go long because I was so stagnant in my fear, and, but it was the one thing that was ruining me. So 
I just want to share that really quick. Let's move on to verse 11. It's, Paul says, this is, this is going to be a little mouthful, so bear with me. Paul says, again I ask, did they stumble so as to fall beyond recovery? Not at all. Rather, because of their transgression, salvation has come to the Gentiles to make Israel envious. But if their transgression means riches for the world and their loss means riches for the Gentiles, how much greater riches will their full inclusion bring? I am talking to you Gentiles. Inasmuch as I am the apostle of the Gentiles, I take pride in my ministry in the hope that I may somehow arouse my own people to envy and save some of them. For if their rejection brought reconciliation to the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? If the part of the dough offered as first fruits is holy, then the whole batch is holy. If the root is holy, so are the branches. If some of the branches have been broken off, and you, though a wild olive shoot, have been grafted in among the others, and now share in the nourishing sap from the olive, olive root, do not consider yourself to be superior to those other branches. If you do, consider this. This is good. You do not support the root, but the root supports you. We'll come back to that. You will say then, branches were broken off so that I, that I could be grafted in. Granted, but they were broken off because of unbelief, and you stand by faith. Do not be arrogant, but tremble. For if God did not spare the natural branches, he will not spare you either. Consider, therefore, the kindness and sternness of God, sternness to those who fell, but kindness, kindness to you, provided that you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you also will be cut off. And if they do not persist in unbelief, they will be grafted in, for God is able to graft them in again. After all, if you were cut out of an olive tree that is wild by nature and contrary to nature were grafted into a cultivated olive tree, how much more readily will these, the natural branches, be grafted into their own olive tree? That was a mouthful. All right. So, one reason for Israel's unbelief, Paul writes, is to make room in the main body, referred to as the root of God's tree. This space is intended for the non-Jews, the Gentiles, you and me, in the world. These Gentiles who are coming to God through faith in Christ are like branches of a wild olive tree that have been grafted into the trunk of a cultivated, a cultivated plant. The old branches, unbelieving Jews, have been broken off for a time to make this possible. And some of y'all in here might know what grafting is. I, don't, I didn't know, so I had to research it, so I'll let you know what it is. Um, so grafting, grafting is when you take a wild tree branch and you bring it over to a cultivated root and you make a slit in it and you put it in the cultivated root and you tie it around and that branch eventually grows into that root and it becomes a part of that tree. So that's what grafting is. Paul says that God has used the salvation of the Gentiles to provoke Jews to jealousy. Paul hopes that the Jews will see what God is doing for the Gentiles and that they will want the same thing for themselves. So what does that mean for us? Our lives ought to create a genuine longing and thirst for the things of God to those around us. I'll say that again. Our lives should create a genuine thirst and longing for the things of God to the world around us. Some of y'all might have heard the pa passage in Matthew 5, 13, 16, that we are the salt and light of the earth, right? So Paul is thinking that if the Jew being rejected can bring a man to Christ, what would happen if the Jew was saved? A Jewish person giving their life to Christ is much more powerful glory to God in that way. 
So the salvation of the Gentiles, Paul explains, would in turn bring about the salvation of more Jews as they grow envious of the Gentiles' salvation. So here we see again, Paul is not saying here that every Jew will be saved. Rather, he's saying that Israel continues to be set apart for special attention by God. And then we go into verses 16 and 17. It says, as a result of the natural branch, which is Israel, being broken off, the wild branch, the Gentile nations, have been grafted in. We are allowed the privilege of being placed in a personal relationship with God. In the Old Testament, the Gentiles, they were casted out. Only the Jewish people had access to God, the tabernacle and the temple. They could only have access to God. But now, in Jesus, who is the door, in which Jesus literally says in John 10, 9, I am the door, or in other translations, he says, I am the gate, we now have access to a personal relationship with God and to the holy of holies, the perfect presence of God. So why is this? Because God in his grace has turned Israel's rejection of Jesus into the blessing of the Gentile nations. I'll say that again. God in his grace, that's, the, that's important, in his grace has turned Israel's rejection of Jesus into the blessing of the Gentile nations for you and me. Now I want to take a moment on this part of the Gentiles being grafted in because some of us in here, us, me included, some of us think that we might, we might just be a bad tree. This might be this bad tree. But you're not a bad tree. You're just a bad branch. But now that you've been grafted into an eternal root that is nourishing and that you don't have to be a part of that old root anymore. You're a part, you're an heir to the throne. You are made new in Jesus. How many of y'all are glad that God has brought you from death to life? Come on. When I tell you that I am the least qualified to be standing up here doing what I'm doing right now, I'm telling you I am one of the least qualified to be standing up here doing what I'm doing right now. I'm being dead serious. Like, looking back, it's all God. I had a come-to-Jesus moment yesterday morning, and I'm just like, man, I'm not meant to be doing what I'm doing. I'm literally not. But God. We all have that but God. It's like, but God. Just looking back, it's like you can just see God constantly moving in your life. So no matter where you came from, what your old root looks like, you are made new in Jesus. You are royalty in Jesus. Oh, that's so good. That's so good. So what should this spark up in our hearts? I think it should spark humility and compassion. Right? We should be humble that God chose us. God chose me. God chose you. God chose you. So we, we should bring humility to the table and say, God, thank you for choosing me. But also it's to bring compassion in our hearts, compassion for the lost, knowing what we see and hear and taste in the word, that we take it out to the, to the people that are hopeless, to the people that are hurting. We should have compassion on those people to bring the word out. Because in verse 18, Paul kind of goes into this, however, if those who are grafted in, the Gentiles become arrogant and prideful, they too will become unfruitful and will be broken off. Because if Israel returns, which they will, Israel will be grafted back in. What Paul is trying to get the readers to understand is that it is God, not the individual. 
That's why I was coming back to verse 18 where it says, the branches do not support the root. It is the root that supports the branches. You don't support God. I don't support God. God supports us. Some of y'all, some of us need a reminder of that. I'll read verse 22 again. It says, consider, therefore the, therefore the kindness and sternness of God, sternness to those who fell, but kindness to you, provided that you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you also will be cut off. So we must view Paul's wisdom here as a warning to not become arrogant in God's grace. Right? We, don't, we don't need to live in fear, though, to, about losing our salvation because you can't lose something you didn't earn. You can't unearn something you didn't earn it, right? So you can't lose your salvation. But Paul is just saying, be careful. Don't be arrogant. It's God's grace. Let's move to verse 25. I do not want you to be ignorant of this mystery, brothers and sisters, so that you may not be conceited. Israel has experienced a hardening in part until the full number of Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will turn godlessness away from Jacob. And this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. We'll stop there. When it talks about mystery, this isn't like a truth that's hard to understand. This is just a truth that was previously unrevealed, and Paul is now revealing it to the public. He's proclaiming it to everybody. That's what it means by uh, mystery. And Paul wanted to make sure his readers understood God's overarching plan for Israel. This was important for the Gentiles in particular, again, to understand that we shall not become arrogant of God's grace. So in verse 25, it kind of breaks the hardening of Israel down in two separate ways that I wanted to share with you guys. So the first way it says it is partial or it's in part because throughout this time there is a remnant chosen by grace, right? A remnant of Jewish Christians. So it's in part, it's partial in that way. But also it is temporary because in verse 25 it says it will end when God's sovereignly chosen number of Gentiles have been saved. After the full number of the Gentiles have come in, the, par the partial hardening of Israel will be removed and all Israel will be saved. Here again, we see that all Israel will be saved. But this isn't meaning all Israel, all the Jews. It just means a large number because if we go back to Romans 9, 6, not all who are descendants of Israel are Israel, Right? So then in verse 27, 26 and 27, the quotations from Isaiah, Paul is showing that God still has a redeeming work to accomplish with Israel, and that work will not be left undone. It will not be left undone. We'll move down to verse 28. As far as the gospel is concerned, they are enemies for your sake. But as far as election is concerned, they are loved on account of the patriarchs, for God's gift and his call are irrevocable. Just as you who were at one time disobedient to God, have now received mercy as a result of their disobedience. So they too have now become disobedient in order that they too may now receive mercy as a result of God's mercy to you. For God has bound everyone over to disobedience so that he may have mercy on them all. So the Israelites may be enemies of the faith in Jesus right now, and they certainly were the spiritual enemies of Paul back in his day. 
And yet the Jewish people still remain deeply loved by God because of his promises that he made with the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So what does this mean? What can we pull from this? God never breaks his promises. That's pretty powerful. It's simple but powerful. God never breaks his promises. And yes, this chapter is in big part about Israel, but how many of you are thankful that God keeps his word? Like, he is faithful. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. He is so faithful. I know countless of times in my life where God has come in like he said he would. I didn't believe it, but he still did. I'm sure, I'm sure all y'all have no, no instances like I do, but... So his gifts and calling on Israel cannot be taken back. God will use his grace and mercy towards the Gentile Christians to make Israel jealous. He will use these events to bring Israel back to himself as a nation in the form of those individual Jews who will eventually trust in Jesus Christ in a future time. So what can we pull from that? If you have, if you have notes, you're writing notes, this is one to write down. God will let someone drift if that's what it means to get them back. I'll say it again. God will let someone drift if that's what it means to get them back. So let this be an encouragement to some of, some of, including me, some of us in this room, that if you have a family member, a close friend, a coworker that might have been on fire for Jesus at some time and they've kind of drifted away, let this be an encouragement to you is that they're never too far gone. Because God will let someone drift that that's what it means to get them back. Let that be an encouragement. Keep praying for them. Keep seeking God for them. Keep being a light. Keep letting them know how God has been in your life, shedding light into their darkness. Let that encourage you. And I want to share a little story. It's not about someone who drifted away, but just how God used me in a supernatural way that I didn't think that he would have used me. It was with my cousin Jordan. He's my main man, best man in my wedding. I love him with all my heart. Absolutely amazing guy. We started having monthly Zoom calls uh, early 2021, and they're about leadership, pouring into each other, talking to each other, just building each other up, encouraging each other. And he wasn't a Christian at that time. He wasn't a Christian. And we started pouring into each other. You know, I was on fire for God because it was, a, it was a hard time in my life where I got told in a month I'm going to California and uh, I was like living the life here. And, but how many know in the hardest moments of your life, that's when you're, that's when you're sometimes on, most fire, on fire for God, right? I was in Leadership Pipeline. It was, yeah, plug Leadership Pipeline merch, come on. Uh, but... Um, yeah, so I was on fire for God. And in our Zoom meetings every month, I would sprinkle some Jesus taught me how God is doing what I'm learning in Pipeline, all this stuff. I was sprinkling. And over time, come September of that year, I wasn't, even, I wasn't expecting it. And he started asking more questions, more questions, more questions. God used me to bring him to Christ. Yeah. That's powerful. And I'm telling you right now, I had, Jordan was the last person that I thought. God would use me. I'm telling you. And uh, Eli shot a little testimony about that story, and I cried in that, and I, I'm not going to cry tonight. But, uh, but Jordan, that's how much he means to me and how much, like, that was the first person God really ever used me to bring. So it's like 
God will use you no matter how far someone might be gone or they drifted away. God might use you in a supernatural way that you didn't even know he could use you. Yeah, plug the Leadership Pipeline if, if you're thinking about it, join it, because I learned a lot about discipling and doing that in Leadership Pipeline, so it's absolutely amazing, so it's starting off this next fall, so. <laughs> All right, we'll move on to verse uh, 33. It says, Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments and his path beyond tracing out Who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has been his counselor? Who has ever given to God that God should repay them? For from him and through him and for him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Say it with me. Amen. Come on. So Paul closes this chapter with a doxology. Now, some of y'all in here might know that I'm not the sharpest tool in the shed <laughs> or the sharpest crayon in the box or, or however you want to put it. I'm just not. It is. See, that's another reason why I'm being serious. I, I shouldn't be doing what I'm doing today. It's all God, all God. So I didn't grow up in church, so I had to research the word doxology. Some of y'all might know, some of y'all might not, but I'll give you the definition. A doxology is a liturgical formula of praise to God. Now, some of y'all probably know where I went from here. I had to look up the word liturgical. I had no idea what that meant. I'm telling you, I shouldn't be doing what I'm doing. But God. (laughs) So liturgical means relating to liturgy or public worship. Now, I thought you couldn't define a word within a word but I guess that's false in this case. I guess when it comes to Christianity, that, do, that rule doesn't apply. So some of y'all might know where I went from here. I had to look up the word lit. No, I'm just kidding. I didn't, I'm just I'm just fine. I did it. I did it. Um, I could put two and two together. So, so Paul is publicly declaring praise to God in three different ways in this doxology. That's what that means. In verse 33 and 34, Paul praises God for his greatness. His first statement concerning the Lord has to do with God's wisdom and omniscience or his all-knowingness. The question is asked, who knows the mind of God? Who is the person that gives God advice? The answer, no one. No one. God's mind can be pondered through men by scripture, but no one can truly understand the mind of God. We are not his counselor. God does as he pleases, and we are there to praise him for whatever he does because God is God. Example A, Romans 9. Not going to go there. Verse 35, Paul praises God for his grace. The question here is this. To whom God is a debtor? Does he owe man anything at all? Some people might think he does. They Expect God to move the snap of their finger, jump through hoops if they ever want something, right? But that's not the God of the Bible. God of our Bible reaches out to us by his grace. He doesn't owe us anything, but we owe him everything. We owe him everything. So let us never forget that truth, that God doesn't owe us anything, but we owe him everything. Every dollar in our pockets is a blessing. Every lung full of air 
is his grace. In every heartbeat in our chest is his grace manifested. Your home, your car, your family, your job, your health, your intellect, your talents, your possessions, all of these are gifts to you by God. And guess what? These gifts, they're meant for you to use for his glory because all things are meant to be used for God's glory. So everything that you have should bring God glory, which goes into verse 36, how Paul praises God for his glory. He says, everything in this world exists because there's a God in heaven who willed it to be here. That is who he is, and that is the power he possesses. In Colossians 1.16, Paul said it this way, for in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible, invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. All things. So now you can see that God is the center of his universe. Everything in creation has God at the center of it. Everything. Invisible, visible, everything. Now I'm going to ask you this. Is God the center of your universe? If everything in this universe has God at the center, everything, everything is God the center of your life. Maybe you may sit, be sitting in your chair and you're like, well, Nate, I don't think he is. But how can I make him the center of my life? Well, I'm glad you asked. Some things that you can do, hear me out, wake up a little earlier. Get ready the same amount of time. Get to work 15 minutes earlier. And when you get to work, don't go in. Put on some worship for five minutes. Be in prayer for five minutes and open the word for five minutes. Little by little, that'll start making God the center of your universe. If you have kids, stop sitting around the TV at night while you're eating dinner and watching TV. Turn the TV off, sit around the table. Parents, start talking to your kids about what God's doing in your life, how God's been moving. Ask them what they saw today that may, might, God might have been glorified in their life. Start doing that, start modeling that for your kids because then that'll might be change in your life. Also, if you don't have a Christian community around you, if you don't have friends here at TC or, or wherever, a Christian community, people that are giving life into you, get in some small groups. We got a men's and women's collectives coming up this Friday and Saturday. We got a bonfire men's. Men's bonfire is going to be great. We got a woman's cookie exchange. I'm sure that'll be, that'll be great. I'm sure it'll be great. We got small groups kicking off in January season one. Get around some people that are life-giving. Get around some people that can model that for you. People that are wise beyond your years that you can look up to and, say, and see how they put Christ at the center of their life. Learn. Learn from them. I'm telling you, it's life-changing when you get in relationships, small groups. Life change doesn't happen in rows. It happens in circles. Have you heard Pastor Brad say that before? It's important. 
So I pray that every believer in this room tonight will come to a place where in everything that we are and everything that we do, that we look for God's glory first. Because for him, for from him and through him and for him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. Tonight, let's make God the center of our lives. Let's make God the center of our universe. Imagine the impact we can have in our community and in this world if we start here tonight making the God the center of our universe, the center of our life. Some of you, it might be for the first time. Or some of you, it might just be realigning your life to God's perfect will for your life. Either way, let's start tonight. Let's do it. We can make an eternal impact in Pensacola. Let's do it. So whatever it is, let's take the next five minutes and reflect on this, how God can be the center of our life, be the center of our universe. Ask yourself, God, are you the center of my life? And if he's not, ask him to be. Let's take the next five minutes to reflect on that. And then at the end of those five minutes, Pastor Brad will come up and he will dismiss us. But let's take these moments to reflect on that.